Hello there, and once again, welcome to the Broadcast Preview Podcast. Callum Williams here alongside the most dynamic duo of Kindred E. St. Albin and Jamie Watson. Quite the podcast coming your way. We'll talk about LAFC and the 1-1 tie uh, with Minnesota United at Allianz Field. We'll recap and take a look at what lies ahead for the likes of Chicago, Orlando and Montreal, the likes of those that didn't make the postseason. And of course, we'll also preview the last regular game of the regular season away at Seattle Sounders. All of that and more coming your way shortly. Uh, but first, Kindred e. St. Aubin, let's start with your overall thoughts, emotions, feelings after Minnesota United closed the season at home at Allianz Field. I think it was a performance fitting of the home crowd. I think we talked so many times about, you know, the importance of playing for that fan base and not just the supporters and not just the Wonderwall, but the entire the entire group. And I think that Minnesota United coming out with that kind of a performance and at least, you know, doing what they needed to do. And now it's just, it's just craziness to me because it's just, you you finish that game and it feels like nothing is any more clear. You know, I mean, I was talking to um, a couple people at Lifetime Fitness yesterday and they were like, oh, are you guys in the playoffs? Are you, when, when's the next home game? And I was like, honestly, decision day is actually decision day. Mm. You know, I mean, that doesn't happen every year. It doesn't happen in every sport. But there is so much still riding on this game on Sunday that even though Minnesota United wanted to kind of relish um, that last home match at Allianz Field for the regular season, it's like your your attention has to immediately turn to the Sounders match and, and how much is still riding on it. So loved the game. Um, I thought it was fantastic. I thought we got from Vela what we expect to get from Vela with that left-footed finish. Um, we can debate all day about, you know, Moambe Tarot not stepping a little bit closer to the ball when, you know, Carlos Vela's got it on his left foot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that ultimately um, Minnesota, you know, did what they needed to do against a really tough LAFC side. And now I think everybody knows that maybe LAFC isn't as bulletproof as maybe they were the first three quarters of the season. It's a good way of putting it. Um, one win in the last six for LAFC heading into the postseason. That's not something to completely push to one side, in my opinion. I think Kendra brings up a very good point there, Jay, about LAFC now exposing themselves a little bit. And, and a lot of team have, have uncovered a way or several ways now to beat them. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think one big thing is also uh, playing into that is people are figuring out now that when LAFC attack and they throw numbers forward, especially with their outside backs, they get exposed at times two on two in the back. Mm -hmm. And you saw Toronto go into bank of California stadium. And quite honestly, I think they watched the tape from Minnesota United figured out that was the blueprint for what Minnesota United did sit in absorb pressure and attack the wide spaces when you win the ball quickly. And when you do that, you get opportunities and, Endo was was open early on, got the first goal in the game, and then he was at another opportunity. I think a few minutes later, there were a couple of opportunities for Toronto to go and win. This is at Bank of California Stadium. Now, I think the version of LAFC that we saw the other night here at Allianz Field was uh, different. Slightly this, reserved. Yeah, it? it didn't it didn't have the same sort of reckless abandon going forward. And and I start to wonder maybe that's because. As equally as good as Brian Rodriguez was on one side, normally you've been getting that on the other side from Carlos Vela. But without Adama Diamande in there, now Vela's been asked to play up top. And you get this kind of in-between factor where the, the field starts to tilt one way, right? Carlos Vela will start to shift over and join over with Brian Rodriguez or he'll shift over and start to join in with Diego Rossi. But then there's not really a lot in the middle of the field between the two center backs. And... 
I think you're starting to see the real value of what a number nine actually really means to LAFC, because I think that's part of the reason they don't go with such reckless abandon. You can't overload defensively one side because they'll quickly shift it with Atuesta or K to the other side, and they'll go again on the other side. And then you're one-on-one with Velo or Rodriguez. And I thought Rodriguez was fantastic on the night. I thought Vela was actually subdued a little bit compared to what we've normally seen in that role. And actually for large pockets of the game was either neutralized or wasn't very prevalent and mm-hmm. was also, I dare I say, disappeared at moments. I completely agree. Now, having said that, he still scroll, scores a curler into the corner for his record-tying goal. So like any good goal scorer, you could be awful for 89 minutes and you go score a goal and one minute, one moment of magic changes the entire complexion of your performance in your game. So um, LAFC is not the same team that we all thought two months ago, hands down, best team ever. Because I remember we've had this debate, haven't we, guys? Mm. Are they the best team ever? And could they be the likes of Atlanta from last year or Toronto FC from the year before? I dare to say, if I asked you that question now, would they be the same answers from what we had earlier? I think if they shatter every record, but they don't win MLS Cup, then no. I don't care if they get the goal scoring record, they get the wins record, I w- or the points. I mean, I would still say, I would say no. I feel like you got to complete it. You got to complete the task if you want to be the best team ever. That's just my opinion. That's fair. I completely agree. And from what I remember, I, I think I might have said no in the last podcast because. I was oh, a sure, big fan. I, was, <laughs> I don't know if I remember this I correctly, remember but I'm pretty sure I said the right answer. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of that Toronto FC team in 2017. I thought they were unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously they went on to, to win it all and, and got the points record that particular season. Um, and they had a, a supreme little Italian playing um, in a number 10 role who was, um, again, uh, borderline uh, imperious. And, um, you know, I just don't, I don't think um, we'll see a team like that uh, again for a couple of years. I think into Miami at some stage with the uh, suggestions could very well be uh, a team of that ilk in the, in the next couple of years, but that's all here. So we'll wait and see. Um, overall though, Kindra, uh, a 1-1 tie against mm-hmm. LAFC. Uh, not a bad way to close out the regular season at home for Minnesota United. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't mad about it considering the opponent. Um, I, I agree with Jamie that it's not the same that we're used to seeing from LAFC with Vela. I think actually, you know, LAFC and Bob Bradley do teams a favor when they put Vela centrally because it just mm-hmm. automatically there's more bodies around him just because of where he's positioning. So I don't think attack-wise they looked as dangerous as we have seen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a, a draw at home, uh, knowing that everybody was going for it on both sides because LAFC is still wanting those records, wanting those points, wanting to go in with the postseason with some momentum, um, I would take that any day of the week. You know, I, I really do feel like a point at home, even against LAFC, but with Carlos Vela, and for the most part, their, you know, their full squad, um, I thought it was I thought it was a good result. And I think Minnesota United, I think the fan base, I think the group – would be pleased with that because of uh, knowing what's at stake and, and and heading on the road with a little momentum. I don't I don't know that Adrian Heath would be disappointed with a point at home against LAFC. Well, and keep in mind too that's now four points out of six on the season against LAFC, and they've also not lost to LAFC in the last three yes. games. Mm-hmm. So that's seven out of nine points against LAFC. There's only maybe one other team, the Galaxy, that can kind of boast that sort of record against LAFC, and and we all know full well the dynamics between that and and the storyline behind that. LAFC having never beaten. 
the LA Galaxy um, since their existence in Major League Soccer. So, yeah, I think also, too, you knew that going in, a point still put you in a spot in which you were in second on tiebreakers with Seattle Sounders. Now, if LA Galaxy, had they won and done their part, they would have gone to 54 points and they would have been in second. But the way things shook out on the night, a point actually does put you in a spot where you go to the Seattle Sounders and they have to beat you to surpass you. Mm. If Minnesota United would have won and picked up two more points, well, we still would have been in the same spot because Minnesota had been on 55 points. Seattle had been on 53 points and it's still the same thing. Seattle would have had to beat you to pass you. So you, what you did, you was, you, you basically held serve and you put yourself in a spot where now the pressure is on Seattle. Mm -hmm. Now, at home, CenturyLink Field, last day of the stadium, last day of the season, they're going to feel that this is a, a spot where they they welcome the pressure, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit as we preview that matchup. But you held serve, so you have to be happy with that against one of the teams that could break the record this coming weekend yes. for the most points in the season uh, in a regular season MLS history. Yeah, you're right, and we will talk about that Seattle Sounders game uh, coming up on Sunday. Here and quickly shortly. before we move on, your thoughts on the game, Cal, because we've given ours. Give your kind of your take on it from your broadcasting preview because you're the our broadcasting kind of reflection because you're the one that says the names. Were there some names that you thought you'd say more? Some names you found yourself saying quite a bit because they were very influential in the match. Uh, so first of all, I was quite surprised when I saw uh, Diego Palacios in the lineup, but I, I know it's a player they're very high on and somebody that they. I think it might have been you chatting to John Thorrington. Yeah, it was they, before they think the game. He, what, what did he say about him? He said he thinks Palacios will end up being one of the best outside backs in Major League Soccer very soon. Not this season. He's still adjusting to you know the the way of life and, and the move he goes. But by next season, the years on, he'll end up being one of the best right the best left backs this league's ever seen. Mm. Which is quite a statement because he's only twenty years old. Mm. Um, on the cusp of the Ecuadorian national team as well. So, look, there is a player there. I thought he was quite good, actually. Um, but I, I was surprised that he was there because El Manier has actually been a, quite a decent mm -hmm. outlet for them over the course of the last couple of weeks when he's played. Um, and I, I, I just thought because um, because they, they do lose um, a Carlos Vela playing, uh, in inverted commas, out wide um, in a free role, I, I thought another body up the field in, in the attacking transition attacking phase would have helped them out but but nevertheless it was it was Palacios and, and I thought he was good um I don't think I saw Mark Anthony Kay lose the ball once at all mm -hmm. um just a fantastic player and proof that if you do enough scouting there is talent in the lower leagues and this is, this goes for world football you know just not just in this country but if you go and do your scouting mm -hmm. there is talent um in that pool for sure um and look, I, I agree with the, the sentiments that you've both suggested as well, that, that Carlos Vela, uh, as a number nine, as an actual centre forward, is a lot less effective mm -hmm. um, compared to, to when he's playing um, in the free role behind the forwards, um, simply because he doesn't get the ball as much. And there were times, I thought, that he, he we saw him almost in the centre circle dropping to get the ball because he was so irate that he wasn't getting the touches that he usually Desperate wants. To get it, wasn't he, he was. And, and, and look, you said, look, he gets the the uh, the opportunity on the edge of the penalty area, um, and, and and I know we, we've had this debate, Kendra, about Wimbe Tarat needing to get a little tighter. And and, and I look, I, I'm one of those who will say, I think he should, but also it's very easy for us to say this because we we see how Carlos Vela is with the ball at feet as well. He could very easily have tucked back outside, mm -hmm. shifted it onto the right foot, and and if you're too tight, then you've got an issue, haven't you? So. Um, 
But look, I think um, despite him scoring goal, scoring the goal, I thought Minnesota contained him quite well. I thought the two centre-backs were very, very good for Minnesota. Um, and again, Vito Manone made, um, made several very, very good saves as well. So all in all, uh, a good point for Minnesota United moving forwards. Um, it's been quite the playoff race this season, to say the least. Now, what we'll do is, because we, we tend to speak about the Western Conference almost every week on this podcast, we'll save that until next week when we know how on earth it finishes because right now there are so many different scenarios as to how it could finish. Um, the Eastern Conference seems to have been locked up for some time, uh, apart from really the, the last slither of hope, that seventh spot um, for the postseason. Um, teams that were chasing it, the likes of Chicago Fire, Orlando City and Montreal Impact, Kendra, have, have all had their own issues this season. But I wonder now, moving forward, this is a subject we've discussed on this podcast before briefly. With Chicago Fire moving in to Soldier Fields, we've all heard the whispers that Vikal Panovic could very well be in trouble anyway. Mm-hmm. But with this now, another added element of a, another failure of a season for Chicago Fire, you do have to wonder if Panovic is going to be around next season, don't you? I think he has to be out. I mean, just my opinion, I think that two seasons in a row, even last season, I think at the end of it, we were kind of wondering, or at least I was wondering that if he was going to be around, if they were going to extend him. And then another failed season where you do have some real talent on that roster. You have some really good players on that roster and the new ownership, meaning that the owner who took the, you know, the full load of the team on now and the possible rebranding of the Chicago fire and moving into soldier field. It seems like the right time to make a change. I just don't know if that locker room is responding to him anymore. And, for me, I feel like that's a big piece of it. I feel like the, the players have to want to play for you. They have to respond to you. Yes, you're a professional. You're an adult. You have to be able to motivate yourself. You have to be able to get on the pitch and do the job and get the job done. 100% agree with that. But there's something to be said on those tough days or on the road in, in particular, being able to, you know, kind of get that job done. And I, I just don't see it with Chicago fire. I think they need a change. I think there needs to be some new blood in there, some new life, a new voice, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I think that it's a necessary step. And I think that, you know, I don't know if it'll be the answer, but you're got to have a little life, at least just going into soldier field and, and knowing that you're playing in an environment where you may be getting a lot more fans and a lot more fans that are passionate. And, um, you know, Jamie probably talks to Dax McCarty a little bit to know how the frustrations that he's had this year, but knowing the, the, the talent on that roster, you would have to think that they, they should be doing better. They should be faring better than I know they're sitting in eighth, but it doesn't feel like in an eighth place finish no. in the Eastern conference. I mean, that, that might be fortunate to be sitting just below the playoff line. Yeah, and we'll probably leave those conversations you've had with Dax uh, to one side. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, you're, but no, Kendra, you're right. So you get what Kendra, I think, what you were just kind of get like a sense and a feel of like what it's like, you know, to be just one. I can relate. I've been on bad teams before, but then two, like obviously, I I do know Dax, and and he's very. He's like the ever most he's prideful. Yeah, he's he's very very prideful, but he's also ever the optimist about things. So he mm-hmm. always thought they they were just right around the corner. Mm-hmm. If I would talk to him after a, a bad game or a game in which it didn't go well or something like that, he was like, right. But I just feel like look at what happened the week before or mm-hmm. something like that. Like there's we're right on the cusp of of mm-hmm. breaking this thing through, and it just mm-hmm. it never really seemed to happen for them this year, but. Then also, too, that's last year as well. Only 32 points and a 10th place finish last year for Chicago. Eighth place this year, 39 points with one game in hand. So, you know, 71 points in the last two seasons. 
at most 74. You, you just start to go with, you, with the first thing you said, Kendra, and I could tell that was your gut instinct, your gut reaction. If you're making this change, now's the time to make a change. That was honestly the first. As soon as you said, I'm shaking my head off, you know, on, on the uh, other side of the microphone here going, yeah, that's exactly it. Because I think you start to get to the, the definition of insanity, mm-hmm. kind of doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Now, granted, in 2017, third place, mm-hmm. dominant there, but it just it hasn't felt that way. If we keep saying each and every year on paper, this looks like it should be a very good team, mm-hmm. but yet it's not translating to the field, then where is that getting lost in translation, right? So is it is it are we are we seeing a team that's signing players that maybe their namesake from what they've done in the past is is seemed good, but maybe they're not there anymore at that level, and then there's that evaluation of okay, we need to just not get fixated on the names. We need to find the next wave of players that can contribute right away, you know, or is the talent still there in those names and they're still at a level that can perform just the most isn't being asked out of them or squeezed out of them from a coaching perspective. Right. But, but what, what do they do though, moving forward? I mean, is it a case of they go and get a proven MLS coach or do they go international? It, it's such a predicament for the Chicago fire right now. It is. And I, and I think, look, you've got Nelson Rodriguez, Eddie rock two of the people there that are the highest up in the organization. So Eddie was actually my, my agent for a decade. Yeah. So this guy, when I talk about having a, a network across the world, he used to float ideas for me of where I could potentially go play across the world. And so, I mean, when I say like, he's got a network of people, so they, they've got these doors that are open and Nelson Rodriguez, one of the most um, uh, respected and, and well thought through thorough men that I know in this game. And so I, I think that they have the ability to unlock different ideas that maybe some people don't have with the connections that they've built up over time. To answer your question, point blank, though, I don't know if you go international. International could maybe lead to a little bit more of a learning curve. And I think when you're on the back of two years and you're going to downtown Chicago and you get this chance right now to strike fast and hard with essentially almost a new market. Sure. It's the same market, Mm -hmm. but it's downtown Chicago as opposed to Bridgeview. I'm not sure where in Chicago Bridgeview even is. Actually, I couldn't even. You said million bucks. Tell me what point to it on the map. Couldn't do it. <laughs> I think you got to go somebody that knows the league, can maybe tap into what the likes of Minnesota United did and found some veteran players that were available within the league and Eichel Parr and Ozzy Alonso. Maybe steal that methodology a little bit and go right. We're going to find some guys that know this league, a coach that knows the league. We can use our scouting networks and go that way. But I would hire an American coach if one is available that you think knows the league well enough in the salary structure or pair him with somebody that knows it really well to be able to be that guy that behind the scenes that can make it work. Well, not that people, Kendra, yeah. and not that coaches can't learn it, but we've seen with a couple coaches just in this past cycle of like trying to figure out the salary structure and like, Oh, I can't just buy everybody. I want, no. I can't do You know what I mean? Matias Almeida, even, um, perfect example, DeBoer yeah. was, you know, he was a little bit shaken by in the very beginning. About, Explain a discovery uh, yeah, process. Exactly, of, yeah, exactly. You got a discovery family, process yeah. on Messi and MLS. Like, right, you know what right, I mean? That's, exactly. a, that's actually a thing. Yeah. So I think that if you're trying to kind of write the ship, but make the right decision, and I, I do think if there's someone that fits the bill and fits what you were looking for within the United States, then I would I would go that direction as well. Would you make a change, Cal? Absolutely, I would make a change. I would go with a proven MLS manager. Yeah. Um, but who is that? <laughs> do you? What about what about the name? I'll throw this name out to you. Go on. About a guy like Logan Paws. 
So um, Logan Paul is a, is a former Chicago Fire legend. That's a risk, though, Jay, with him not having any coaching experience. And, and I know he's been coaching, but not having any managerial experience. That That's... In that, MLS, right. <laughs> so, so you have to have, obviously, somebody that is paired with him. But I think it's... There's one name, a Chicago Fire legend. Um, if there's not, if there's not a standout name right now that you're sitting there going, this is a anybody guy who's which... been fired this year that would be. Well, look, there's going to be a lot of there aren't going to be a lot of names thrown around. I personally think at some stage, Carl Robinson deserves another ah. opportunity as there well. There you go. There's one. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking guys that that played in the league that maybe transitioned over, understand the league, understand MLS in a sense of it's okay to have veteran players while you're also kind of rebuilding the younger side of your roster to and then find players that bridge the gap. It's they've got they've got also they have an academy system. Right. So they have an academy system. They have homegrown systems that they can pull from. I mean keep in mind they they also got rid of a guy like um uh what's the what's the one boy um Gutman. They did yeah. they had they had the the rights to be able to get him but couldn't pull a deal off. Now look there's obviously the discussions behind the scenes on that but they couldn't figure out the deal, and then he went and signed with Celtic. So, you know what I mean? Somebody thought he was pretty good. Mm -hmm. Celtic is one of the most premier European teams over the last century. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not as if – it. I mean, it's not a small-time third-division club in Malta that picked him up. <laughs> no, no, that would be quite uh, precarious, by the way, third division in Malta. But, um, <laughs> First two are – I've served in the Premier League in Malta, yeah. <laughs> um, and just briefly off the subject, you mentioned it, and I wanted to ask you both, actually, in your careers, you, you mentioned, Jay, um, Eddie Rock once suggested to you that there are all these countries you could go and play in. Did you both ever have a chance to, to go and play abroad anywhere? No. I mean, first of all, I'm really old. Let's not do that. <laughs> so, like, WPS, WSA, even in the United States, were failing, like, left and right, even when I was graduating college. It wasn't even, like, a thought process. And that's what I love about the NWSL now. Mm -hmm. There are so many good college players that aren't national team players, and now they have an opportunity to play after college if that's what they want to do. Yeah. They get paid peanuts, and they have to live mm -hmm. with five other women you know, it's like college days again. But if they want to pursue that and they can go overseas, Simone Colander, yes. who was our intern, yeah. go for legend, like so good, such a great person and tried the kind of the working thing here, but was still pursuing. And then she has gone overseas. So like in Iceland, I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And look at in the other countries now, all the opportunities in women's football is really making strides in some of those European countries. And um, so anyways, I, I did not have the opportunity. I don't know if I would have been good enough anyways, but it, at, at my time, even teammates that I had in mind that played at UNC and that mm -hmm. were national team players, like they went one or two years, maybe WSA. And then they're like, I can't live. I can't make a living doing this. So yeah. it was not an option for me, but I appreciate you throwing me in the conversation. Cal. <laughs> of course. No, it's, not, it's not crazy to think you're, you could have played. <laughs> Uh, Jay? Uh, after the U-17 World Cup, PSV were interested, but I was already in the mindset I wanted to go to UNC. I was already, I, I did, I wasn't, I was never even thinking Europe. Like, to be quite honest, it, it wasn't, this was 2003. So my mindset was also kind of, I, I'm set. I want to kind of stay here domestically, at least go to school for a little bit. So PSV had the most interest after a, uh, after the Youth World Cup. And then Eddie, um, Eddie told me about, um, there was, there was a teammate that had a coach um, about the time I signed with him that was in New Zealand. New Zealand was an opportunity during because well. the, the, the seasons coincided with what USL was at the time. Mm -hmm. So they played what and was essentially the offseason, the USL, a little bit of crossover. 
Um, so that was one option, but very faint. And then Eddie threw out the idea that um, I could actually go to Thailand and play. And I had never been to Thailand at the time. I've now been to Thailand. Hmm. Oh man! <laughs> I mean, I would have. You loved I, I would, it though, didn't you? I, I loved thought? it. Yeah. I remember. Didn't you I go there for your honeymoon or yeah, something? Yeah. That's where we went. Yeah. Good memory. Yeah. That's that's. I would have. Had I gone on that trip first, I might have said, "Yeah, let's go." Mm-hmm. I actually really enjoyed it over there. But no, it was nothing more than some fleeting conversations. And I was dating Kaylee at the time, but we hadn't been to mm-hmm. Thailand yet. And I remember when I was like, "Hey, so Eddie just told me about." Thailand. What do you think? And she was like, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we are not going there. So, what about Cal, you, Cal? Yeah, you had any opportunities? Any, any oh, abroad? You, yeah. you were in an academy, weren't you? What what youth club were you with, though, too? Just prior to growing, smaller you know? little clubs and stuff. I was never um, good enough. I had a lot of injuries as well when I was, uh, when I was playing. Um, I did my ACL and I had a lot of back issues as well. Mm-hmm. I've always just been really old. So I'm carrying just the team. Really, <laughs> you, do, you are kind of an old soul, you know, so you I, I guess that translated so. into your I, body. I, exactly. I, I, someone said this to me, I just turned 30, I thought you were 45, and I was like, come <laughs> on, <laughs> behave. That's nice of them. I thought like 48, 49 maybe. <laughs> you guys are making so. me feel better all the time. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, in terms of broad, like, opportunity, obviously I'm abroad now, so, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I don't even know if I consider the U.S. abroad anymore. It's been so long yeah. we've been here. But anyway. You whipped up your I was going to say, if you live in England yeah. for soccer, do you consider, you know what I mean? At that time, I don't know that people were coming to the United States to play soccer, like when you were growing up. Like it wasn't unless you were going to school. Sure, sure, yeah. I, I would have like done it. Like you're in the hotbed of soccer would, yeah, at that time. I would have done it in a heartbeat. I'd have come and played here if I went to college and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely I would have. But um, I was never... Uh, Never good enough, to be honest. What was interesting, I was actually having this conversation with my my old man, with my dad, when he was over a couple of days ago. Um, I wish I understood and knew the game as I do now mm-hmm. as a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you guys feel the same I way mean, as yeah. well. I mean, I've been pretty good. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's amazing, isn't it, how much you learn yeah. when, when, you're, when you're in it as well. And this is coming from somebody who, who never played professionally as well. You know, it's... Um, it's amazing how much you learn when you're in and around. Mm-hmm. Um, people like the coaching staff we have here at Minnesota United were very gracious with their time and, and explained certain things to us. Um, it's, uh, it, it is a, an eye-opener. It really, mm-hmm. really is. And when you're immersed in it every day, it is fun because you can be however, whatever age, and you're constantly learning. You, know? you are. You are. And um, talking of constantly learning, um, Orlando City seem to do the complete opposite. Um, and once again, Jay, well, I'll come to you on this because it's close to your heart. Again, they failed to make the postseason. I hope they give James O'Connor the time that he needs, obviously, to turn this around. But given their previous and past records, I, I just don't know what next season is going to look like for them. I think James O'Connor, obviously, uh, he proved in uh, the USL at at Louisville that he was a coach that understood tactically how to play and, and um, kind of really started to grow his coaching acumen there. And I think that he was a, a really good hire for Orlando city, not just because he proved on the field tactically that he had the the wherewithal to be able to, to lead a team. He's got the sort of fiery personality that commands respect. Anybody knows he's played over 500 times in his career. I mean, if it's not his performance, it's his, it's his just personality, his character that commands that respect. But he was also good for bridging the gap between the clear divide that had been developing for some time between the fans and the ownership group. 
and there it make no mistake about it. I mean, you go go look at anything the Iron Lion firm put out. Right now, there is not a cohesive relationship between the two. So James O'Connor was sort of that bridge between, you know, how do we go from what it was to what it is now? And I say what it was was when, you know, it was in USL. It made the jump to MLS at first under Adrian Heath. And then when they went the other direction, the fan groups also went that direction. So they needed something to tie the two back together. And James is that perfect fit. James is also a very good coach. He wasn't just a, a figurehead, right? But I also think that James O'Connor came into this 2019 season, I believe it was well-documented, with next to no flexibility in the cap, with some guys that were on very big contracts that mistakenly were played in games that triggered guaranteed clauses for 2019 that the players were never going to let go as they should. And so his hands were really tied on a few things and he wasn't able to go and make as many moves as he wanted to. Now, obviously Orlando city again, finished this year in 11th at 37 points. And if we have to be fair to Chicago fire, because we just had the same conversation with them earlier, talking about the past two seasons, Orlando city finished in 11th bottom of the Eastern conference with 28 points last year. So it hasn't been good enough, nearly good enough for Orlando city. But I also think that as James O'Connor took over in 2018, midway through the season, I, I don't know if we've ever gotten to see fully a year and a half in any sort of real semblance of a team that is James O'Connor's team. And he did a good job of getting Tesho Akindeli. Like I don't think Tesho is a player that you necessarily build your club around. But he is a he kind of like almost revitalized him in in a weird scoring yeah. role, you know, that we didn't see for a while. With exactly, Dallas. you're you, that's a, that's a, the perfect analysis. Uh, Huan, one of the other you know yep. outside backs that, barring an injury all season, could have been in a discussion for an all star type role. I mean, you, you start to look. There's there's a few glimpses, a few pieces. Um, Asquez was was pretty good yes. in the midfield. Um, Mendez had moments. Um, Look, Dom Dwyer obviously isn't what, by his standards, he wanted to be. I just think if you made a change now, what are you making the change for? Sure. Don't just make a change for the sake of making a change because they've done that quite a few times now, and it hasn't worked. So give James the full license and say, James, this is your offseason. This is your window. We will support you, and you have from now until this very time, Next year, when decision day 2020 rolls around, and if we are not in a playoff spot, you are gone. And then he goes, okay, I've got the the winter window, and I've got the summer window to try to find that with the support and the flexibility to make moves with the players that aren't tied to him. Mm. But that takes patience, and that would give James O'Connor two and a half years. You start to wonder, if you actually give somebody two and a half, maybe even, dare I say, three years? It's Crazy, they could actually pull something off, huh? What I think, too, though, the difference between, like, Chicago Fire and Orlando City and Pavlovich and and James O'Connor is, you said it, I mean, there's been so much has been made about the other moving pieces in that Orlando City ownership and front office or whatever you want to call it, that there's just a lack of, like, stability almost from what I've been hearing from the outside, from mm. just listening sort of to, to stories that have been told the last few years compared to Chicago. I mean, Pavlovich got hired there in November of 2015, so he's had time to 
make it his own. And I think James O'Connor deserves more time because I just think that's that's a tough situation to walk into. And there's been several coaches that have tried and failed on very short leashes, let's call it, you know, that. Um, and so I think it deserves if they let him to make it his own and actually have some control over what he wants to do with that roster. Well, talking of uh, short leases, one other um, change that I think is inevitable is a managerial change in Montreal. I, I am still not convinced that Wilma Cabrera was anything other than an interim manager there. We'll save that subject for another day because let's concentrate on the positives on the Eastern Conference side. Yes. Um, Bruce Arena, he has his critics um, and will forever have his critics um, for various different reasons. But he's done a very good job at the Revolution. Another one at the other end of the scale, Kendra, that's done a fabulous job. And I say at the other end of the scale in terms of experience and, and very much building his career now is Jim Curtin at Philadelphia mm -hmm. Union. Um, surprise package of the season, perhaps? I think so. I mean, they sat at the top of the East for a very long time before NYCFC kind of started to catch fire. And then also Atlanta United started, started to find their form. Um, but I guess I shouldn't be shocked because I remember talking to J.P. Della Cameron. He was very high on Jim Curtin. He's seen he's seen and been around a lot of coaches in his day, and he felt like he had something going there and went about things the right way. And the way they developed some of their talent, as we just saw Aronson getting pulled into the men's national team, and um, he plays for Philadelphia in a very prominent role with the union. So I'm um, surprised for me, but um, I guess maybe people on the inside and the people that are there weren't surprised. Um, but they're still sitting in third, and they had some really, really nice wins that I think um, they pleasantly surprised people with their consistency. And that's that's what championship, that's what good teams, great teams do, is they're consistent. It's not a one-off, oh, man, we we beat Atlanta United tonight. Like, it's it's a consistency thing, and I think they've been able to do that the entire season. And another team that have been very consistent, we just mentioned them, Jay, is New England Revolution since Bruce Arena took over. How has he been able to turn things around in Foxborough? Well, I mean, I think that uh, there was a, a quick shift in the mindset of the players. I, I think that, that Brad Friedel had kind of, um, and Kendra, you know Brad very well. You guys had uh, a lot of conversations over the course of his tenure there, too. So um, you know him probably best out of out of anybody that I know, quite frankly. And and I think that it's one thing you can you can like a person as a person, but then sometimes it doesn't mean that you like him as a manager. Or you can like him as a manager, but maybe you don't like him as a person, vice versa, as from a player's perspective. And I just think the way that maybe he wanted to operate things and go about things didn't maybe mesh with the character of the group that were there. Now, having said that, it could have meshed very well the year before or with the guys that come in next year. It could have been a perfect mesh with them. But I think at this point in time, you had seen a team in which before he got fired, they were they were abysmal. I mean, it was, it was a team in which they would, they would lose games. They were losing at home. I mean, there was, there was a point in which they hadn't, they hadn't won all season before Minnesota United came in. They were, you know, hadn't won in the first four. They got their first win in five, but then, then they went and lost, you know, the next two after that and then won a game and then, you know, lost and then tied and then lost big and lost big. And it ultimately was the fact they conceded 15 goals in a three game span so at that that May eighth game against Chicago, where they lost five zero, that's ultimately where he got let go. And you start looking back on it, you go, the team just looked as though they weren't. He wasn't able to get the response from the guys, so they had to make the team. They had to make the change with the team. And with Bruce Arena, it was it was part twofold. New England needed Bruce Arena, and Bruce Arena needed New England mm -hmm. because Bruce Arena, from what I heard, the the reason he took the job, number one reason above all else, was because. 
he didn't want his last legacy as a coach being failing to qualify for the World Cup. So could he have rode off in the sunset? And at that point, yeah. Does he have ambitions to coach in five years? No. Everything I've heard is no, he doesn't. Now, obviously, he could reignite the fire and want to go again, you know, with the success they're having. But I think, quite simply put, they just, they both needed each other. And then with what Bruce Arena has been able to accomplish, he was able to resonate and connect with those players and how he is, knowing the way that, knowing him the way that I do, that's how he is, is a guy that is able to go right. I may not understand what your little handshake is you guys are doing with the team, with the the three guys right there, the group handshake, but whatever, go do it if it makes you happy type thing. You know, we didn't need to control these adults, these grownups. He let them kind of just run free and go enjoy it, but with some structure and an idea and an identity, and it revitalized this group. And it, it is one of the biggest turnarounds from within a season, from within a coaching change. I've seen it a very long time, and I would say they deserve to be in the playoffs, and they are. Now they're sitting in seventh, and it's not a team anybody's excited about playing against. I'll say that. Gustavo Bo, what a yeah. signing he is. Yep. Carlos healed now uh, that he's finally able to do what he can do. By the way, I just am sitting over here chuckling because I'm just remembering what he looked like this summer when he was doing the seminar for the broadcast for the Gold Cup, and he looked so miserable. Bruce Arena? Yes. Yeah. He looked so uncomfortable at, like, the media shoot, and then we had to figure out how to Photoshop him out because he got hired, but it was just, like, he looked so awkward, and he just, you could tell that is, that is not where he <laughs> wanted to be, you know? Yeah. And and the and people like Ben Grossman and David Neal were like, uh, well, we all know the men didn't qualify for the World Cup, right, Bruce? You oh. know, and he's sitting in the crowd in front of all <laughs> these people so like you knew it was a matter of time before he got into coaching at what level or where i don't know but yeah. it was just like it was like everyone was just cringing and, and you kind of felt bad for him but you kind of didn't mm. <laughs> at the same time uh, intriguing stuff okay let's spend uh, 10 minutes before we finish this thing we've got to go and watch the team train haven't we here at the yes. national sports center um the seattle sounders next up for minnesota united in the final game of the mls regular season now here's what i'll say about this minnesota united just need a point to guarantee a home playoff game I personally think, Kendra, that'll be on the mindset of the coaching staff. It would not surprise me at all if we see something similar to what we saw against LAFC and we have a five-man back line with uh, uh, three central midfielders and uh, Darwin Quintero playing off of a centre forward I would assume, I would, assume would be Mason Toy. Um, we haven't seen anything yet. As I said, we haven't seen the team train yet. Um, but that wouldn't surprise me if that's the approach, knowing that all they need is a point and knowing there's more than likely going to be an onslaught from the Sounders who need all three. I'm a little nervous because I think it was the exact perfect recipe for LAFC at that point in the season and that they executed it, the team executed it perfectly. Whatever that tactical plan was that Adrian Heath and his staff put out, and they executed it perfectly. And Mason Toy had two of the most amazing finishes on two shots on goal that you'll ever see to get that result on the road at LAFC. I'm nervous because it reminds me of when you see prevent defense in football, and all it does is prevent you from winning. And there's a, there's a balance to me between having a defensive shape but also not sitting in so much that you're just going to get pummeled by the opponent's offense. So I, I think Adrian Heath and his staff will have a very well thought out and, you know, carefully crafted plan tactically and who they're going to go with personnel and all that. And we're assuming Ike Opara is 100% healthy because we did see him pull up a little bit in that game, but he was able to finish the game, which was fantastic. So I think um, 
I'm I'm a little nervous just because I don't want to I I don't want Minnesota to lose their swagger and their identity, but still get the point on the road if that makes any sense. And if Nico Ladero does play, he trained in full for the first time yesterday in quite some time, but still wearing the red jersey so he can't be touched. And if they do, if he can play, they're going to have their full attacking regular lineup since maybe end of March where everybody is healthy and good to go. And don't forget their other center back is is out as well with red card, I believe. Red card, Ariaga. Mm. Um, I think he got a red in that San Jose game. So I, I just want Minnesota to have their swagger. I don't want them to lose what they what they can do going forward. And um, But at the same time, be smart defensively in their shape, if that makes any sense. But I, I love the five back system, but we also had Brent Coleman then. First, when you say like the Minnesota like swagger, what's what's your interpretation of that before? Well, I just want them to not forget that they can go forward and, and attack and they and they can play with anybody. And when their attack is clicking and the system is clicking and you have the creative pieces um, of Kevin Molino in there and Darwin Quintero is doing what he can do and setting up and sending through balls. through, I just don't want them to forget that piece. That's all. Gotcha. And, I, and I just don't want them to be so concerned with the other team that you forget about what you are good at. That's all. Yeah, no, that's fair. No, because just a lot of people may not. If if you're hearing, you may go and what is what is it when Minnesota United are at their best? And and I could see the the five three two, but I could also easily see a four three three in hopes of not limiting completely the numbers that you're going to put forward. You have those three players that you try to get up top, and you try to get them in behind, and you could have you know the likes of of Mason toy on one side. You could have uh, up top, and on either side, you could have Kevin Molino and Darwin Quintero. I think playing out wide and then you overload the midfield with Hassani, Jan, and Ozzy, and you start to go, right, we're going to try to really win the midfield battle here because that's with Roldan and Svensson. And if Nico Ladero does drop back in there at times, that's a very formidable three in there. Mm-hmm. So you've got to do something to counteract that where you're not getting three V two in the middle of the park and they're able to spray and get balls played out wide at Jordan Morris or, you know, a Jovan Jones on one side. So, or does Victor Rodriguez slide out wide and then, uh, Nico Ladero comes in for Jones, you know, does Jones, you know, does he coming off the bench later on? We'll, we'll see whatever they do, but I think five, three, two invites a lot of pressure on. And then if you go down, you, have to change formations to go quite a bit more attacking in game. And that's difficult without mm-hmm. the flow of the game, because what if you come in and you concede in the first five minutes mm-hmm. now, coincidentally, you could also not concede. You could get one on the counter. You could go up and that's the perfect formation. But I think if you start a four, three or four, three, three, knowing that this could potentially shift if you needed to, to a different formation where you could drop back, um, Asani Dotson to a right wing back role. And then you could have the five there. You could drop, you know, Kevin into the middle if you wanted, or Darwin into the middle and have, I would probably put Kevin back in the middle. And then you put Darwin and Mason up top mm-hmm. or vice versa. However you want to pick your poison, how they're ever they're playing on the day. You could have more flexibility in that position. But I think for me personally, I would, if I'm Adrian, I would choose a four, three, three on the day, because I think that you do still need to try to find a goal in the game. Sure. But that allows you to be able to flex back into that five, three, two, if you want to, but either way, I do think there subconsciously will be an element of knowing a draw is good enough and a draw. If you're a Minnesota United supporter, you'll take that and you'll go. That was, that was a win today. So make no mistake about it. When you watch it, a draw is like a win and it gets you a home playoff match at Allianz field. But you also have Ozzy Alonso possibly on the pitch. And I'm excited to see the, 
the ovation. yeah. Let's give that its, ju- its due justice. Kendra, you know, give, give us your thoughts on what that what you well, think I, that'll be I, like. I'm excited to see the ovation that he'll get there because he's one of those players that's returning to where he played for his entire MLS career and was successful and a, a man of the community. His family loved it there. Everyone loves him. I mean, Adrian, he said yesterday, like he gets constant calls about, or maybe it was two days ago, you know, from people in Seattle every time he does something. Ozzy has a good game, which is just about every game, hmm. and and they miss him there, you know. And so I'm excited to see that. And there's that emotion too. So even though in the back of the head, I agree 100. percent They'll know that a draw is good enough, a point is good enough to get home field advantage. There's also something to be said about these way the way these guys play for each other when they're facing their opposition, their their former team, and especially there at Seattle where he just spent so much time. So you just wonder what kind of adrenaline that will be. And he said himself, like playing at Seattle will be a completely different animal than, than when they came here. And I think he's, he's ready for it. If you know, he's good and ready to go, but there's gotta be that emotion too, that, um, that adrenaline and that just wanting to, to, to prove like you guys didn't, you didn't take the time and the energy and the money to resign me. And now I'm going to go out there and improve myself. Not that he has to, his performance does it on its own, but I just think that that energy and that adrenaline is going to be pumping. Yeah, it's just a situation unlike any other, and I got yeah. a chance to do it um, a couple times in my career. You play against a former team, and it's just it, it means something more, right? True. I mean, there's 34 games. No matter in what the they season. say, yeah. it always does. It, of course, it does, and and you want to go and do well, and and it meant a lot when they played here, but also there's nothing like going back to the same stadium that you played in for a decade. You know what I mean? The familiarity, the sense, the feeling. You walk in, and it's even like the little things. You walk in, and you'll see. One of the security yeah. guards that you were mm-hmm. that you always got to see every day, day in and day out, going to the stadium. You'll see some of the the people that worked in the stadium, worked in the club that that don't travel, that didn't, you know, you didn't get to see in that one. It, it has a sense of familiarity, a sense of home, right? And and although, you know, the Twin Cities are Ozzy Alonso's home now, you, you know, a decade there, sure. Yeah. You're, you you've planted roots there. You've you've you know grown your family there, and so I uh, I hope that. For Ozzy's sake, um, and I, I don't think it's out of the realm of, of reality to think this, I, I hope the supporters have a nice little tribute for him, mm-hmm. something to kind of say, hey, thank you, so you can see what you've meant to us. This yep. is our chance to fully show you for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, we all know how Ozzy is, and, and you know that he'll go right. The best way that I could make this a memorable experience for me is to give the most quintessential mm-hmm. performance I can give, and that's very workmanlike. That's tough. Let's break things up. Let's be a leader. Go in and do whatever you can to help his team win because that's all he ever did while he was there was help his team win. So he's going to want to do the same exact thing now wearing the Minnesota United black and blue, and it's going to be a uh, a really special moment that I think we're all going to be very happy to be a part of um, to see it firsthand. And I think it all ends with a, um, a pretty bow on top for Ozzy Alonso if he's able to go and guide his team to a result that they want to get. Uh, predictions then before we go, Kendra. Uh, I'm going to go 2-2. Two, two. I have 1-1 one, one in my mind. I Cal? 2-2 two, two in my mind as well. Okay. I think there's some goals in this game. Your game will be more exciting then. Yeah. <laughs> mind, so that's good. Let's hope you guys are right. <laughs> Having said that, we'll all take it, right? Yes, yes. absolutely, yes. Uh, wonderful. My thanks, as always, to Kindra D. St. Auburn, to Jeremy Watson, our producer, Morgan Lupin. And, of course, you can watch Minnesota United on the road to Seattle Sounders, second against third on Fox Sports North. Decision day coming your way at 2.30 p.m. on Sunday. We have an extended pregame for you, full of surprises and very, very special guests. As always... Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to a Minnesota United production.